Ezekiel 24, 1 through 14. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this, very, of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well. Mix in the spices and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it, into the fire with its corrosion, on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I was spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent according to your ways. And your deeds you will be judged, declares the Lord God. This is the very word of the Lord. Three weeks from, three weeks from, am I on? All right, sorry. <laughs> three weeks from today is Christmas Day, the day we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus. Now, I have no idea if December 25th is actually the day that Jesus was born, and nobody knows, but as we begin our study together this morning, I want you to see that a specific date notice does begin in this chapter. And it's very specific. In the ninth year, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month. So it's been about a decade since Ezekiel has been in exile in Babylonia. In verse 2, the God of Israel tells Ezekiel, did you hear this? Write down the name of this day, this very day. Historians can tell us accurately the day that's described here is January 5th, 587 B.C. 
and God wants you to know that day. We get the sense that what happened on this particular day is a key moment in history that God wants Ezekiel and his fellow exiles to take note of, and evidently he wants us to take note of it since it's found here in our Bibles. This is the day, we are told, that the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. It's one of the most significant days in history, according to God. Why? What is the meaning of the day? Now, on the one hand, it is easy to understand the significance of this day for the Jews who were in exile. After all, Jerusalem was their capital city, and an attack against it would be nothing less than a national crisis. But why does that day matter to us as Christians? It matters because the nation of Israel is the chosen people of God all throughout redemptive history. And we need to remember that the whole point of God choosing Israel was that through them, he might bring salvation to his world. What we learn in this moment of history then is that God is intent on killing every remnant of sinful disease in his people so that they might bring, or God might bring, the flourishing of his kingdom through them into his world. God is intent on killing every remnant of sinful disease in his chosen people so that God, through them, might bring the flourishing of his kingdom into the world again. So January 5th. 587 B.C. Now, in order to see all of this, let's consider this morning in Ezekiel 23 and chapter 24, the problem of contamination, the cause of contamination, and the solution to it. The problem of contamination, specifically within the people of God, the cause of that contamination, and God's solution to it. First, we see that the problem of contamination that is addressed here, uh, I've chosen to focus on these first 14 verses to kind of help us see, I think, the way God wants us to see in this particular parable that he tells. Take a look at it in verse 3. God tells Ezekiel to utter a parable to the rebellious house. That phrase, a rebellious house, is the frequent designation of God for Israel throughout Ezekiel's prophecies. We encountered it specifically in chapter 2. But here, the parable in verses 3 through 5 goes like this. Follow along, take a look at it. Set on the pot, God says, set it on, pour in water also. Put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh, the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock. Pile the logs under it. Boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. Okay, so do you, do you get the picture? Do you get the parable? Do you see what's happening here? I've started cooking a little bit, so I get it. Hopefully you get it. The images of a cook preparing a meal, placing within a pot 
choice cuts of meat into a boiling pot of water. And all of this, by the way, is not new to Ezekiel. I know it's easy for us to forget these things, but all the way back in chapter 11, we saw this image being used by the Jews who had not yet been sent into exile, the ones still living in Jerusalem. And they were claiming that they were the meat in the cauldron of the city of Jerusalem. They were the choice meat boiling in the cauldron of the city of Jerusalem. Now there we noted that the image that's being used, that may sound like an absolutely horrible image, like we're the meat boiling in a pot, but actually the image they were using in Ezekiel 11 was, a, was an image of privilege. The idea was that they were the chosen pieces. They were God's elect. They were the choice meat of God himself at a formal, stately dinner. And God here is affirming that image by having Ezekiel utter this particular poem. But in the context here of January 5th, 587 B.C., at the very moment where the siege of Jerusalem has begun, this poem is somewhat perplexing. At the very moment that Jerusalem is being attacked, God brings up this image of a sacred meal in which he comes to commune with his people. And so, we're left wondering, is this a day of good news? Or is this a day of bad news? The image, the parable, is one of privilege and expectation. But on this particular day of horror, we're confused, we're perplexed. So, on the one hand, there's definitely bad news here. The beginning of the fall of, the, of Jerusalem cannot be sugar-coated as the next verses show. The popular poem celebrating Israel's privileged position is subverted in verse 6, where God declares, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. At the end of the verse, God puts a halt to the preparations for the celebratory meal. He takes over as the cook, demanding that piece after piece of the choice meat be taken out of the pot without any discrimination, he says. And then another pronouncement of woe follows in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he makes the fire hotter and hotter until all the liquid is burned out of the pot and the meat along with its bone is completely burned up. So, the problem as God sees it is not so much with the people, with the meat, but with the city identified as the pot. That's not to say, of course, that the people get off the hook. They are completely burned up. But the point is that the destruction of Jerusalem now underway is necessary in order for God to cleanse the pot. In verse 11, he instructs the pot to be placed back on the fire with nothing in it so that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. This according to God, is the meaning of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. 
In verse 12, God complains that the abundant corrosion of the city simply would not come out any other way. The disease was in way too deep. So now in verses 13 to 14, God explains why he is destroying the capital city of Israel with the swords of the Babylonian army. He has tried numerous times before to rid the pot of its impurities, but it has all been in vain. So he says, you shall not be cleansed anymore until I have satisfied my fury upon you. And then in verse 14, he shows his determination with a striking staccato. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. Now, what do you make of all of that? For some, it is easy enough to read a text like this and disassociate oneself from this gruesome image of God's judgment taking place in real historical events. You're tracking with me, aren't you, that the siege of Jerusalem is not some biblical made-up story. This is the stuff of history. You maybe learned about it in your ancient history class. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Like, this is a real thing that happened. But it happened so long ago, and some would read a text like this and say, well, the people of Jerusalem had it coming. They got what they deserved, some might say. Others will surely read a text like this and stumble over it. No doubt in part because of the ill-advised assertions of numerous people in history, ancient and modern, that claim to draw a straight line from the tragic events of history to some obvious persons God wanted to judge. And we ought to be wary of those who might turn to a text like this to support any form of anti-Semitism, this is not the way this text should be used. The best approach here, I suggest, is to stay with the parable as best you can and the parable of this meal. God's intention here, what God is doing, is nothing less than his covenant faithfulness to Israel for the sake of the world. The plan all throughout the Old Testament, which is why we really have to get this, Christians. The the plan all throughout the Old Testament is that God is bringing rescue and redemption and ultimate restoration to his broken world through his chosen people. We need to read these stories with a much bigger picture of God's mission in the world completely in view, even as we will, of course, have to wrestle through the question of theodicy in its painful details. But the satisfaction of God's fury here is nothing less than his total commitment to see to it that this great communal meal between God and his people is as perfect as it ought to be. No one is going to come to the great communal meal and end up with food poisoning. 
as Revelation 21, 27 promises us, nothing unclean will ever enter into God's new world. God is not only a master chef, he is also a professional deep cleaner. He is determined to put his world right. And the destruction of Jerusalem was part of that process, Ezekiel here claims. And that's because for God to put his world right again, he must cleanse his people completely. He must rid them of every last hint of contamination. So I, years ago, fell for the whole thing and bought into the Norwex stuff. And I still use some of it because I was promised that that silver in those Norwex rags will eliminate every last hint of contamination. Well, God is going to do it. He is going to so thoroughly cleanse his people through whom he's going to bring restoration to his world. That's the meaning of January 5th, 587 B.C. Now, this work of cleansing his people is easier said than done. It's already clear here in chapter 24 that God's people are like a pot that just won't come clean. I tend to do the dishes at our house, and I hate those kinds of pots. I mean, you scrub, you scrub, you soak. The next day, you come, it still won't come out. You know what I'm talking about? You need to clean more dishes, some of you. Rather than bringing life to the world, God's people keep contaminating it. Jerusalem, God says, is a bloody city. Colluding with evil rather than pushing back against it. Why? What is wrong with the people of God? What is the cause of this contamination? Well, much of what we've already seen in Ezekiel up to this point has already addressed this. This is a repeated theme throughout the prophet's ministry. It's hard for us to miss it. But most recently, it shows up in the previous chapter. So let's go back to it for just a moment. Ezekiel chapter 23, because here we find yet another retelling of Israel's history. Just like the one in chapter 16 or the one in chapter 20. And just like in chapter 16 and in chapter 20, Ezekiel is retelling Israel's story, retelling Israel's history, and he's doing it subversively. Here in chapter 23, God names the divided kingdom of Israel, describing them as two women, the daughters of one mother. The northern kingdom, represented by the capital city of Samaria, is named Oholah. The southern kingdom, with its capital city, Jerusalem, is named Oholibah. <laughs> now, Commentators, of course, go nuts trying to figure out what is the meaning of these strange names. And I think I'm most convinced by the commentaries that say we probably should not read too much into the names. The significance of the names is actually in their similarity. The names sound similar because the nations are similar. 
They act like the sisters they are, showing they possess the same nature and character. In verses 5 through 10, God tells the story of the northern kingdom, describing the nation's behavior as repeated acts of infidelity with the Assyrians. In verses 11 to 21, he then describes the southern kingdom of Judah, not only going down the same path as her sister, but becoming even more corrupt. Now, what really ties the two sisters together and what is most subversive about the history that God is telling here is the fact that the promiscuity of the nations goes all the way back to the time in which they lived in Egypt. Just read verse 3 and then see it again in verses 19 and 20. The language is quite explicit, so I'm not going to read it out loud. You can read it. It's in your Bible. And it's meant to communicate that the defilement of God's people is generational. It goes all the way back to before the exodus from Egypt. Yeah, this stain is in really deep. This pot is not coming clean. So the problem with God's people then is not simply the immoral behaviors of any number of them. It's not simply the unfaithfulness of this particular generation or some previous generation. No, the problem is deeper than that. We might even say that those are relatively easy problems to address and clean up. Today's Christians who claim to be the people of God have plenty of immoral behaviors that need to be addressed. We're certainly not to believe that we now are squeaky clean pots and pans. Of course, we ought to be clean. We ought to resist sin and seek to live lives of holiness. John wrote one of his letters to help the believers not sin, but if anyone does sin, He said, we have an advocate with the Father who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness every single time we come and confess to him. The much more difficult issue to address is the one that goes all the way back to Israel's adolescence, as it were. And what was that problem? Well, there's no mistaking the problem that's outlined here. Take a look at verses 29 to 30. Toward the end of verse 29, God says, Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you, because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. So all throughout Ezekiel 23, the metaphor of two adulterous wives stands for Israel's alliances with foreign nations and the defilement of their idols. The original target for Ezekiel 23 was the people of God in Ezekiel's day who were at this very moment when the Babylonians are coming up to lay siege to Jerusalem trying to save their necks by striking a deal with Egypt hoping that Egypt will come to their aid and rescue them from the Babylonian attack. So, in other words, get this. When you read Ezekiel 23, you just have to get this. The sexual sin that's portrayed throughout this chapter is a metaphor 
for political sin. Now, what is that? Well, back in chapter 5, God spoke of Jerusalem as a city that he had, quote, listen to this, placed in the center of the nations with countries all around her. That's what God says about his people, about his capital city. He has placed them in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Israel was a truly theocratic nation meant to be the world's greatest nation whose way in the world living under God's rule would bring benefit and blessing to everyone. Israel's rebellion against God meant not trusting in him, but forging alliances with other nations. And in the ancient world, when you forge an alliance with another nation, you are recognizing, here's the way we describe it, recognizing their sovereignty and thus giving legitimacy to their gods. And God calls that behavior adultery. And the worst kind imaginable, the explicit language of Ezekiel 23, is there to get your attention. You're supposed to read a chapter like Ezekiel 23 and go, whoa, that's intense. Because this is the language that's meant to have a much greater emotional impact on the reader than would have been possible if God had used more direct language. Here's the point. When God's people lose trust in God and his kingdom by making alliances with idolatrous kingdoms to get what God himself promised to give them, this is a sin that God cannot tolerate. This is a contamination that God says, I must cleanse completely. And surely we find here one of the abiding truths from this part of Scripture for God's people in whatever time and place. As Christians, we must confess. Indeed, this is our confession. This is what it means to be a Christian. We confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King. And we must bow the knee to no other. God's kingdom in his Messiah is a real kingdom. Oh, Christians, we need to grasp this. The kingdom of God is a real kingdom, and we must not be found guilty of finding our security in any manifestation of the kingdoms of men. So, the Christian approach to political realities remains to this day a difficult and oftentimes controversial subject. Of course it is. But it is not one that we can ignore because God certainly did not ignore it. How could he? The kingdom of God is a claim on this world, not on some disembodied promise of a different world altogether. But getting this right is the great challenge before the people of God in every generation. It's the challenge you and I have. What does it mean, for example, when Jesus says, seek first 
the kingdom of God. When we live with all sorts of would-be rival kingdoms all around us, vying for our affection. How can God and his kingdom be our single-minded delight so that we who trust in him bring the world closer into communion with him instead of polluting the celebratory feast? In other words, what is the solution to our contamination? Well, one further point from Ezekiel 23. God's judgment on his people, first on the northern kingdom, Samaria, then on the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, must be read, must be read as his covenant faithfulness to his people. God will simply not let his people become like the rest of the nations. He won't do it. He just won't do it. So in verse 9, God responds to Samaria's harlotry with Assyria by delivering her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. Read on in verse 10, and you can see that through uh, that though Samaria wanted the power of her Assyrian lovers, she ends up invaded, taken advantage of. And a similar thing happens to her sister Jerusalem in verses 22 to 35. Again, this is very explicit language. You just go ahead, skim it. You decide if you're going to read it to your children. (laughs) It's borrowed from the dangerous realities of prostitution and male sexual dominance. God's point is made in verse 35. Here's what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me, And cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. When God's people turn away from him, stop trusting him, and seek instead the power that comes from political alliances, that power, God says, will come back and devour you. That's why it bothers me greatly when I see Christians making leagues with political parties. I cannot tolerate the claim that any president of the United States literally saved Christianity. Take heart, Christian. Christianity will never need to be saved because the Christ has overcome the world. But what does need to be saved is a Christian confidence in our Lord. What needs to be saved every day, if you and I are honest, is a confidence that will keep us at peace when trouble is brewing all around us. Let's be clear. Criticizing one side of the political spectrum does not mean that we are now free to make peace with the other side. Let us learn the lesson of Ezekiel 23. In verse 25, God says to his people, I will direct my jealousy against you. And remember what we've learned about God's jealousy in Ezekiel already? The meaning of this word is centered in the commitment of the marriage relationship. It simply must be understood that way. When you hear God speak of his jealousy, you must think 
of a faithful spouse, God, so faithful to his promise, to his people, that he simply will not tolerate any rival to his relationship with them. He won't put up with it. It's not okay with him. He is a faithful spouse. But God's intolerance does not mean that God has a short fuse. When you read of God's wrath or God's fury, you must not think of someone who just can't control his emotions. You must not think of a God who will pull the plug eventually on his commitment to his people, however justified he may be in doing so. Instead, God strikes at the root of our disordered love in order to win our affection and thereby create a new reality. Jump over to Ezekiel 24 and let's read verses 15 to 18. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. That's in your Bible. Strange and troubling passage to be sure. And one which, you won't be surprised, much ink has been spilled trying to explain the many questions that it invariably raises. You've got questions about this text, don't you? I do. All kinds of questions. But this is clearly another one We should be used to this by now. Another one of Ezekiel's sign acts. Ezekiel is commanded to not just speak a message, but to act out the message that God is giving to his people. By the way, this is what prophets did. It's what Isaiah does. It's what Jeremiah does. It's what Ezekiel does. And when the prophet of all prophets comes, and you read your New Testament, you read the Gospels, guess what? Jesus does these kinds of things too. Strange perplexing acts, you know, like cursing fig trees and so forth. He's acting like a prophet. But this time, God is the one who does the acting, taking away Ezekiel's greatest treasure, his wife, the delight of his eyes. We get a... a, a rare glimpse into the internal life of Ezekiel here in this passage. He had apparently a wonderful relationship, godly marriage with his wife. And although God permits Ezekiel to grieve his wife's death inwardly, he forbids him from utilizing any of the outward ceremonial expressions of grief. And the people understand that Ezekiel's actions are a sign act Because in verse 19, they ask, 
will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting like this? And Ezekiel does tell them. In verse 21, he reports God's own interpretation. This is the meaning of the act. This is the meaning of the sign act. Behold, God says, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. Your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. So the event that is prophesied here in this strange sign act is not only the ultimate fall of Jerusalem, but the destruction and desecration of God's own house, God's temple. It was for the people of Israel the symbol of God's invincible presence with them. If the temple is still standing, God is still in our midst. But notice in verse 21 that God himself is grieved with them. He says, I will profane my house, my sanctuary. God is grieving. But the fall of Jerusalem, complete with the utter destruction of the temple, would strike at the root of his people's greatest delight. And as you saw there, the pride of their power, their confidence in the symbol of God's presence rather than in the presence of God himself. And the effect would put his people in the balance, as it would you. How would you respond if God took away the delight of your eyes? For many Christians, this would be the end of their faith. And on the one hand, we would understand that. But on the other hand, would this not show that it is not God himself we cherish more than anything else? Would it not show in a moment where we feel God has taken the greatest delight of our lives away from us, would it not show that after all, we were actually idolaters, worshipers of other gods? But there is another possibility. What if, like Job, we could utter in our grief, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Then, there is another possibility. It's the possibility that God promises to Ezekiel and to his people will become a reality Ezekiel dramatizes that on the day the temple falls, as verse 23 reads, look at it. This is a strange thing, but you got to see this. This is, I think, the key to what's happening here. God says, rather than mourning, rather than publicly showing your grief, he says, your turbans <laughs> shall be on your heads. We should bring some turbans in here just to kind of give us an object lesson for a moment. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. Now, what does that mean? This is a cultural expression that we Westerners just don't get. I had to look it up, so I didn't get it either. 
in the Bible, putting on a turban is a symbol of acquiring a new status, such as a king assuming royal power. God's promise to these exiles is that at the very moment of their greatest grief, at the very moment when they feel like God has ultimately failed them, at this very moment, a new glorious transformation will take place. Now, for Ezekiel's contemporaries, one could not possibly imagine what that new status could possibly be. How could there be any positive reality that would trump the horrific grief of losing their city and seeing their temple torn down? But you should know, Christian, we should know. We know what this new possibility is. There is simply no excuse for you not to know it. So I'm going to tell you today, and you're going to know. And the advent of the Messiah reminds us. Because when Jesus, who claimed to be the temple of the Lord, destroyed this body, destroyed this temple, he said, and in three days I'll rise from it again. And everybody's like, what? It took all these years to build this temple. And the Bible tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem claiming to be the temple of the Lord, the one who was himself, God with us, was desecrated, destroyed by the cross of Calvary. No greater moment of sorrow has the world or God himself ever known. And yet, these are the words of the prophet Isaiah. And I was just going to read them to you, and I thought, this won't work. Just won't work. You're going to have to see it. Isaiah 61, and we're done. Isaiah 61, because this is a great messianic prophecy, but you've got to see it now in light of Ezekiel 24, like you've never seen it before. So everybody, you've got to see it. Isaiah 61. Look at this great prophecy. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. You remember, Jesus said he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Write down the day. <laughs> okay, December 25th. We'll take it. Write down the day and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. Now watch this. Watch this. To comfort all who mourn. The end of your mourning to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Now, you got to see it. To give them a beautiful... <laughs> What's the word? Joy. It's turban. The ESV says headdress. Why they did that, I don't know. They don't remember Ezekiel 24. This is the Hebrew word in Ezekiel 24. This is the turban. 
He gives to them a beautiful turban instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Christian, to this day, Ezekiel will be to you a sign. This is Ezekiel 24, 24. According to all that he has done, you will do. (laughs) When this comes, you will know, God says, I am the Lord. So grieve no more, brothers and sisters. On this second Sunday of Advent, remember, the Prince of Peace has come. He was taken away from us at a stroke. No greater sadness has the world ever known. But by his death, he has cleansed his people once for all, satisfying the fury of God and launching his new creation. Grieve no more in the blood of the Messiah. We have found our cleansing. And in his resurrected life, you and I have been crowned with the turban of his righteousness. Let us pray. Father in heaven, oh, that the people of God now would find our identity as the people who have been cleansed. What God has satisfied his fury when he has put his elbow into the cleansing of his people, when he has rid us of every last defilement through the Messiah, then we will know God with us. We have a new identity. We have become the redeemed, restored, returned from exiled people of God who, by your spirit and with your grace, are called now to bring the good news of salvation into a broken world. Oh, that you would show us who we are this Advent season. Remind us we are the people of the Prince of Peace. We have good news in a world that only knows the power of dominance, we have the power of the one who laid down his life because we have the promise of resurrection. So renew and reform us in the image of Christ this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brother.